Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today we are featuring the US Navy non-premium tier 5 light scout cruiser USS Omaha. USS Omaha was a light scout cruiser built in the early 1920s for the US Navy, and it has the distinction in World of Warships for being one of three ships that of the US line that carry torpedoes, obviously besides their destroyers and aircraft carriers, but it is one of three US cruisers that carry torpedoes, which is fairly unique and can be used to surprise people because not many people are expecting Torpedoes would be coming out of a ship flying the Stars and Stripes. She also has the distinction of being the last U.S. Navy ship to capture a prize. And a prize is just when you overwhelm another ship, possibly a merchant ship or a smaller warship, and it surrenders to you and you capture it. That's essentially what it is. And she was the last U.S. Navy ship to ever do such a thing. And one final distinction that she has is being the oldest U.S. Navy cruiser that was still in service at the onset of World War II. She was built in the early 1920s, and most of the other cruisers were built in the late 1920s or mid-1930s at the onset of World War II, or at least when the U.S. joined World War II. And without further ado, let's get into the specifications of USS Omaha. So USS Omaha has the namesake of the city of Omaha, Nebraska. And for you who don't live in the United States, Nebraska is a Great Plains state located in pretty much the center of the country. She was built in Tacoma, Washington, and she was laid down on December 6, 1918, launched on December 14, 1920, and completed on August 1, 1921 but not commissioned until February 24th, 1923. She had a standard displacement of 7,500 long tons and a full load displacement of 9,507 long tons. She was relatively long at 555 feet 6 inches overall and only 550 feet at the waterline. She had a beam of 55 feet, making her fairly narrow for a cruiser, and she had a draft of 14 feet 3 inches. And for those in the metric system, she was 170 meters long, 17 meters wide, and 4.34 meters in draft. She had 12 Yarrow boilers, each or not each, but producing a total of 90,000 indicated horsepower, and that's actually a lot for a cruiser and they sent their power into four Westinghouse reduction-geared steam turbines that each powered one screw. She had a top speed of 35 knots, theoretically, but she only reached 33.7 on sea trials. Her crew consisted of 29 officers and 429 enlisted, and that was during peacetime. Since her armament has varied widely by her configurations, I'm going to list the armament she had when she was launched. She carried two twin 6-inch 53 caliber guns, or 152 millimeters, forward and aft, each uh, in one turret. 
She had eight single 6-inch 53 caliber guns, again 152 millimeters, located in casemates along the side of the ship. She carried two 3-inch or 76 millimeter 50 caliber anti-aircraft guns, two triple 21-inch or 533 millimeter torpedo tubes, and two twin 21-inch torpedo tubes. So they had a triple torpedo tube each on one side, and then they had two uh, double torpedo tubes that were each on one side. So on one side you had five torpedoes, on the other side you also had five torpedoes. And she could carry 224 mines along with it. She didn't have that much armor. She didn't actually have any belt armor except over the machinery spaces. And that was only 76 millimeters or 3 inches, which isn't that much. Her deck was only 38 millimeters thick, and that's only 1.5 inches. The conning tower had the same amount of armor as the deck, so 38 millimeters, one half inch, and the bulkheads only had one and a half to three inches of armor, so that's 38 to 76 millimeters of armor, which is not much, but that's to be expected with a light cruiser, and above all things, she's a scout cruiser, meant to be fast and stealthy, which uh, she only marginally achieves that, but you know. She carried two float planes, and she had two amidships catapults along with a crane. She did not carry any hangar. The aircraft were stored on their catapults. Now, by 1945, USS Omaha had been modernized a lot. She had her torpedo tubes, or at least her double torpedo tubes, removed, so she only had three torpedo tubes on each side, and her anti-aircraft guns were widely modernized and expanded to the point where she had to lose two of her six-inch mountings to account for the weight that they had. So she then carried two six-inch 50 caliber guns. Those two turrets on the forward and aft ends of the ship still stayed. She had six single six-inch 53 caliber guns. Yes, so that's two less than before. She had eight three-inch 50 caliber anti-aircraft guns located in the midships. She had two triple 21-inch torpedo tubes. So, three on each side. She had three 40mm Bofors guns. Those were dual Bofors guns. And she had 14 single 20mm Orlikin cannons. So those were primarily located on the aft end of the ship, but just kind of spread all over the place, as they are on most ships, especially cruisers. Now, the Omaha class went through many design changes when they were in design during World War One, but they were pretty much designed to compete with the Caldeon class of Royal Navy warships, which is like a tier three, I think. So the Caldeons came quite a bit before the Omahas did, and the Omaha was kind of designed after the Phoenix class, which is in World of Warships, although the Phoenix class was never made. In World of Warships, they really don't have to deal with uh, the ship not being made. They just kind of make up whatever they want, but that ship was kind of like the napkin drawing sort of thing that led to the Omaha class design. They decided that they didn't like the Phoenix class design, so they decided to make the Omaha just kind of a new design. One of the large problems that the Navy had with the Omaha class was how wet they were. And essentially what that means is there was a lot of water or mist that would come up and obscure the guns. 
So, because their decks were so low to the water, even a light sea could mean that the decks were swamped every once in a while with waves, which made launching mines hard and using the 6-inch guns and the anti-aircraft guns hard, especially the aft deck, which is much lower than the rest of the ship, suffered from wetness and often was unusable. That aft turret wasn't really used in high seas because, well, it was just too wet. The crewman couldn't get to it without being taken off of the ship, and that didn't happen, but there was the danger of that, and it was just hard to be in there because there's constantly water coming in. And that kind of happened in the front of the ship, or the bow of the ship, too. So that was one frustrating thing about these ships, as they were just so hard to use in high seas. Alright, on to the history of these ships. Since Omaha had missed World War I because she was launched in 1923, or commissioned in 1923, rather, she didn't participate in it, obviously, and the interwar period was fairly boring for her, so she didn't really do that much other than just kind of steaming around and participating in training exercises. However, in July 1937, Omaha was serving as the flagship of the Special Service Squadron, which was a squadron that was made to kind of engage in gumbo diplomacy, so the Navy called it. And it was just essentially announcing the U.S. presence in the Caribbean and trying to sort of quell the civil unrest that was happening in South America. It only worked sort it only sort of worked, but it was just something that the Navy did as more of a training exercise than anything. But she was serving as the flagship of the Special Service Squadron, and she was going to be replaced by the new gunboat USS Erie, which you, well, the warships players may recognize as the Tier 1 U.S. Navy cruiser. Some of you may have gotten your start in World of Warships on that ship, such as I. And on July 19th, Omaha became grounded at a reef on Castle Island, Bahamas, which already isn't good, but when you add the fact that she grounded at high tide, that means it's going to be near impossible to save the cruiser. And the Navy tried very hard to save the cruiser, and they managed to, but it was hard to say nonetheless. It took them ten days and, like, six ships to get them off of the reef. Those of you who have listened to my past episodes will know that USS Milwaukee, the St. Louis-class cruiser, as illustrated in the first episode that I have, grounded on some shoals off of the coast, or on the coast of California, and that was the death sentence for that ship, and she broke apart in a storm and was scrapped. Not with Omaha, because Omaha was pretty valuable to the Navy at the time, because of the how expensive she was, so they tried to get her off of the shoals, and they succeeded. So essentially what they did is they kind of tried to shimmy it off the rocks when high tide came again, because on low tide, she was pretty much out of the water. So at high tide, they tried to shimmy her off the rocks, but she was stuck there pretty good. So they sent some ocean-going tugs out there to try and pull her off, but it didn't really work because it was so stuck on the reefs. So the Navy came up with the idea of having high-speed destroyers circle the ships and the tugs to create waves and turbulence to kind of shake her off of the reef. And that eventually worked on July 29th, which, ironically, was just yesterday, if you're listening to this episode when it premieres on July 30th, 2020. She got underway the following day and went to Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth, Virginia to undergo repairs to her keel. 
and her captain got court-martialed for what happened and was found guilty of negligence that, quote, resulted in the stranding of the vessel, and he was sentenced to so-called loss of 25 numbers on the captain's list. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means, but obviously it's some sort of significant punishment for the captain. And even the onset of World War II was not that interesting for Omaha because she went to ports around Portugal to kind of represent the United States and uh, protect U.S. citizens and interests while Spain was having a civil war. And she really didn't do much. She just kind of went across the Atlantic a few times escorting convoys and just patrolling for those dreaded U-boats. It was now that the USS Omaha would engage in searches for blockade runners. But you go, aha, Jaden, there was not actually any declaration of war between the United States and Germany at this point. How could they possibly fire on such German ships? Well, um, that's where it gets kind of tricky, because Germany had this nasty habit of disguising their blockade runners as just merchant ships, and they wouldn't actually fly the German flag. They'd fly some other nation's flag, and as soon as a warship got close enough, they'd haul down the other nation's flag and haul up the other or the German's flag and just wreak havoc on the warship because they were surprised. They thought they were just dealing with an unarmed merchant ship, but it's actually a heavily armed blockade runner. Uh, such an event happened to HMAS Sydney, in which the ship or HMAS Sydney was so surprised by coming up on a supposed Dutch freighter that was in distress and finding out that it was actually a heavily armed German blockade runner, that it was actually sunk by the blockade runner. Yes, a Leander-class light cruiser was sunk by a blockade runner. I think we'll do a future podcast about that in the distant future, but for now we're going to stick to USS Omaha's experiences. So, on November 4th, 1941, the British oiler RFA Olwyn, or, yeah, Olwyn, I think that's it, yeah, uh, said that a German surface raider had attacked her at 3 degrees 4 minutes north, 22 degrees 42 minutes west. And Vice Admiral Algernon W. Willis of the Royal Navy, and he was Commander-in-Chief of the South Atlantic Fleet, ordered that his heavy cruiser HMS Dorsetshire, along with the armed cruiser HMS Canton, search for the raider. And then HMS Duden and the special service vessels HMS Queen Emma and Princess Beatrix were also ordered to participate in the chase and search. Those three uh, previous ships departed from Sierra Leone, even though these coordinates were near, was in the middle of the Atlantic closer to Brazil. And USS Omaha was sailing with the destroyer USS Somers, the lead ship of the Somers class of destroyer, and they were positioned far northwest of the scene of this incident. And the Royal Navy's like, hey, can you come give us a hand? Just kind of search for survivors or let us know if you see such a ship. And they were like, okay. So they kind of were looking around for survivors, and they didn't find any. And the cruiser of Memphis, along with the destroyers Davis and Jouhet, or I think that's a French name, but anyways, they were near the area reported by the Olwind, and they searched the area but were unable to locate any German ra uh, raider or survivors. And so the search continued into the next day, and they were never able to find the German raider. 
but it was not all in vain. So on November 6th, Omaha and Somers turned back to go to the port of Rectifee, and they returned from a patrol that measured 3,023 nautical miles in length, or 4,865 kilometers. And this was mainly in the equatorial waters of the Atlantic, when the Omaha's lookout spotted smoke on the horizon at 0506 in the morning. And the captain of the Omaha, who goes by the name of Theodore E. Chandler, put her on the intercept course and tried to signal the ship. And they realized that the ship was actually flying the U.S. flag with the name of Willimoto. And reports say that that ship was actually out of Philadelphia. And the merchant ship began to take evasive action after spotting Omaha and Somers. And that was rather strange because the Omaha had been trying to identify herself as a U.S. Navy ship just coming for an inspection. And Omaha's lookouts had reported that the crewmen on the other ship appeared to be, quote, uniquely un-American in appearance. And the merchant ship finally identified herself as Willamoto, but that was not satisfactory to the American warships. So Omaha's captain ordered the Willamoto to heave to, and heaving to essentially just means to stop. It's kind of uh, naval slang for that. And Omaha dispatched an armed boarding party. They boarded the ship at 0537 with Lieutenant George K. Carmichael in charge. And at around this time, the Willamoto hoisted the signal's Fox Mike, which essentially means that the warship or the ship is sinking and requires immediate assistance. Two explosions were heard on the ship, and the boarding party began to climb on. So the crew of the Willamoto attempted to escape by loading the lifeboats and sending them off, but they were ordered back on the ship by the boarding party, which essentially caught them at gunpoint. And the crew had attempted to scuttle her, and in the ship's logs they found out that she was indeed a German ship, and that they had attempted to scuttle to prevent capture by the two American warships. And they also found out that it was loaded with around 3,000 tons, or 4,000 tons, of rubber and 103 Goodrich, or Goodrich truck tires and some other dry cargo, totaling around 6,223 tons. That is very interesting. And the ship was now sinking very slowly, although because the explosions had not been very successful in scuttling her. And a diesel engine specialist was brought over from... Somers to assist in repairing the German merchant ship and prevent the sinking. Omaha's float planes and Somers, the destroyer that was accompanying her, uh, patrolled the area to keep her safe from any U-boat attacks as they thought that that might be a possibility with all the action that was going on, especially if the German ship had sent out a distress signal. However, no U-boats were ever sighted or acted on it, and Odenwald, which is the name of the German ship, was made seaworthy. And this was escorted back to Trinidad 
or Port of Spain, Trinidad. And you might notice that that was different than Omaha's original uh, intended location of port, but that was just because they didn't want to have any difficulties with the German gov or not the German, the Brazilian government of bringing back a captured German warship into their neutral ports. And I know that the U.S. was neutral at the time, but the U.S. government owned the warships that captured the German ship, so they could probably reason with them. And you might think, well, what happened to the owners of the Oldenwald that they didn't say anything about this? And they actually did. In 1947, they f tried to sue the U.S. government for it. But the U.S. government defended itself, saying that since the German ship was being crippled by its own crew and was need of repair, they said they simply salvaged the ship. And it was a salvage operation, perfectly legal under their eyes. And the U.S. actually awarded the profits that were made from the Oldenwald and her cargo to the boarding party. And each man received $3,000, which was a lot in that time. And the rest of the crewmen on Omaha and Sovers uh, were entitled to two months' pay and allowances. So they got two months' pay and allowances just right away. And unfortunately, those laws have been, since been revised. And that means that this is the last time ever that a U.S. Navy ship has taken a prize. So now on to her World War II history. So on December 7th, 1941, Omaha was steaming with USS Somers again from San Juan to Rectifi. And she received a communication that informed a captain that the Japanese had attacked the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. She was ordered to execute War Plan 46 against Japan. So it essentially just means that any Japanese ships that she comes across, you have the right to engage with hostile force. And the captain, Captain Chandler, mustered the crew and read the, the message on the deck. And on December 8th, U.S. Congress officially declared war. Germany declared war three days later on December 11th, 1941. And that was kind of it. She spent the early months of 1942 rescuing various sailors from the water after their merchant ships had been sunk by U-boats. Because she was in the Atlantic, and this was kind of the reign of terror, or the golden days, however you look at it, for the U-boats, there was a lot of freighters that were being sunk, and thus a lot of survivors that needed picking up from the water, which Omaha was only too happy to oblige for. 1943 was a relatively uneventful year for the USS Omaha. However, she did collide with her sister ship USS Milwaukee and both ships sustained minor damage and were able to complete their patrols before being repaired in port. However, the damage was more severe for USS Milwaukee. And what I find kind of interesting is damage control parties used mattresses to plug the holes in Omaha's hull, which were only minor, but they used mattresses. So I hope Verlo supplied them with some quality mattresses, because, you know... Not be cool to be flooding after the mattress flew out of the hull in the ship. So American problems require American solutions, I guess. However, this peacefulness of 1943 ended in the very early days of 1944. When she was patrolling out a rectify with destroyer Joliet on January 4th, 1944, a spotter plane from USS Omaha spotted a ship 55 miles northeast of the Brazilian coast. Omaha challenged the vessel, so essentially pursued it at 10:20 uh, a.m., and she lit it up with one of her searchlights, and it produced no response from this unknown contact. 
and Omaha's lookout spotted that the ship was in fact armed and armed and had two guns mounted on the ship's bow. And a large cloud of heavy smoke was observed coming from the stern of the ship. And that was a pretty clear red flag that they were trying to scuttle the ship to avoid capture. Omaha pulled alongside the unknown ship's port side and began to fire with her starboard batteries. And the destroyer Joliet, which had been accompanying Omaha, also began firing upon the ship. The ship's crew were observed attempting to escape off the stern in lifeboats. And Omaha's crew tried to force the sailors back on board with machine gun fire, but alas, that did not work. And so the Omaha just began firing on the vessel again just to sink it, and it finally sank by the stern. And there was a fear among the Omaha's crew that U-boats had been alerted in the area because of the action and the fact that this was pretty much guaranteed to be a German ship. So they simply left the area without picking up any survivors because they did not want to get torpedoed and sunk by any German U-boats, even though both ships had hydro, or hydroacoustic search more accurately. And Marblehead came up eight, or four days later on January 8th and rescued 72 survivors from the ship. It was later confirmed that that was, in fact, a German blockade runner named Rio Grande, and the ship's crew was indeed trying to scuttle her. Literally the next day, on January 5th, Omaha steamed back to the same location as the Rio Grande had been sunk, and again encountered another unknown merchant ship. She, again, challenged the unknown contact with her searchlight and, again, received no response. So, the Omaha tried to signal with her, and it didn't work. So, the Omaha fired two warning shots over the unknown ship's bow, and it appeared to be dead in the water. An explosion was observed aboard the ship, and smoke began billowing from the ship. Captain Elwood M. Tilson, who was now the commanding officer of Omaha, ordered the 6-inch battery to open fire on the unknown ship. And Captain Tilson actually ordered most of the crew to come topside so they could see the ship being sunk because they didn't get a chance to yesterday, which I kind of find interesting. But they sank the ship, and 21 of the survivors were recovered by an accompanying destroyer, and another accompanying destroyer was able to retrieve an additional 35 crewmen on January 8th, so later on after the sinking. This ship was later identified as Bergenland, another armed German merchant ship. So I guess two ships sunk in two days. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good kill rating. It's got a, what has it got, like a three kill, like Omaha has like a three to one kill ratio now, and it hasn't even been killed yet, so it's a three to zero kill ratio. That's pretty good. And on February 6, 1944, Omaha was patrolling with Memphis and Joliet, a cruiser and a destroyer, and they were given orders to look for a German U-boat, U-177, that had been sunk by a essentially modified B-24 Liberator that was operating out of Ascension Island. And U-177 had been sitting on the surface, so a sitting duck, while the crew were sunning and swimming. Um, yeah, so I guess that's a lesson. Don't swim when you're a U-boat that's sitting on the surface in range of a consolidated B-24 Liberator. Yeah, so um, maybe questionable judgment on the 
end of the captain of the U-boat there, but they were rescued, or at least 14 of the crew were rescued. 50 of them went down with the ship. And they were given to the sick bay for treatment of shock and exposure and supplied with fresh clothing provided by the Red Cross. And until Omaha came back to an island to unload them, they were actually placed under armed guard. She was transferred to the European Theater on July 4th, 1944, and was accompanied by the destroyer escorts Martz, Raybolt, and the troop transport General W.A. Mann. And on July 13th, the convoy arrived at Gibraltar and picked up uh, the destroyer escorts Marsh, Hollis, and the destroyer Kearney. Omaha then set sail for Palmyra, Sicily, and on July 9th, or 18th, in company with the battleships Nevada and Arkansas, finally arrived. She then assisted with the bombardment of southern France during the landings there in Operation Dragoon, and that was kind of it for the active service of Omaha. She was targeted by German shore batteries a few times during the operation, but another cruiser laid a smokescreen for her, for which she escaped through. And then she returned to the southern Atlantic, where she would continue her patrols until the end of the war. But wait, there's one more interesting thing about this ship. She had been involved in the search for the Brazilian cruiser Bahia, which was a World War I-era cruiser that had been reportedly sunk by a submarine. So Omaha set out once again from Rectifee on July, or July 8th, 1945, only to find out that the cruiser had been sunk by its own accident. An anti-aircraft gunner had been shooting down a trailing target kite, but he continued to fire as the target was uh, falling down to the water. So essentially, since there was not like a proper stopping thing on the gun that made the rotation stop, he was able to rotate the gun far enough and keep shooting and not notice that he was shooting at live depth charges on the back of the ship, the fantail of the ship. And he shot the depth charges, they detonated and sunk the ship. Only 44 sailors were ever rescued out of a crew of 346, and seven of those sailors died from their injuries. I have one word for that, and that is oops. That is a big oops right there. As the war ended, Omaha's life sort of did too. She was decommissioned on November 1st, 1945, struck from the Naval Register on November 28th, 1945, and scrapped at Philadelphia Naval Shipyard by February 1946. So in the same dry dock that Omaha was in, Marblehead, Cincinnati, and Raleigh were also scrapped in the same dry dock, which I kind of find interesting. Launched together and scrapped together. So that's kind of interesting. And I will be back after a short message from this audio extravaganza sponsor. Welcome back to Rank Amateur, and thank you for sticking with me through the message from this episode's sponsor. And now we are on to the World of Warships section of this episode on USS Omaha. Omaha is kind of a very interesting ship in World of Warships. I mean, she's... There's definitely a high skill cap for her, which essentially means that it takes a good amount of skill to sufficiently play Omaha. And when I was at Tier 5 in the U.S. Navy, cause it, or U.S. Navy cruisers, it was the first branch I went down. So I did not have a whole lot of skill when playing this ship, and this ship was very, very frustrating for me to play. 
I'm going to read her in top configuration because hulls are usually the first thing that most people upgrade on the ship because there's three hulls. Um, in top configuration, she has 26,800 hit points. Her main battery consists of 10 6-inch guns, each disposed kind of weirdly along the ship. It's really hard to explain it without showing someone. The reload time each gun is 7 seconds, which isn't... That actually is pretty good. Rotation speed is or 7.5 degrees a sec, so that means uh, 180 degree turn time is going to be 24 seconds, which is okay. It's it's pretty good. I guess it's tier 5, so we can't complain too much, and especially since the guns are in casemates, so they're located alongside the ship. That's really not an issue, because only two guns can turn the full 180 degrees on the ship because some of the guns are sided, which means that they're in the size of the ship and they can't turn all the way around. Firing range is 15.21 kilometers, which is pretty respectable. Maximum dispersion, 137 meters, so it's really not that inaccurate. It's actually quite accurate, I mean, at uh, long range. Maximum HE shell damage is 2200. Chance of fire on target caused by HE shell, 12%. This thing is like the tier 5 flamethrower. It, it really sets a ton of fires, and that's one thing that this ship is really good for. And it's a ship that I think all destroyers at their tier should run away in fear from. Because it's essentially just a really, really big destroyer with 6-inch guns. The initial HE shell velocity is 914 meters a second. It's good. It's actually pretty much laser-like. It's really unlike... Uh, the most U.S. cruisers, when you get those really lofty shells, it's like 700 or 800 meters a second. But no, these shell arcs are really, really low uh, at 914 meters a sec, which is going to make it much easier to hit targets and destroyers at long range. APE shell damage is 3,100, which is actually pretty good. Initial HE or AP shell velocity, 914 meters a second again. And the AP shell weight is 47.6 kilograms. That's actually less than the HE shell weight, which is 47.7 kilograms. The AP on the ship actually isn't bad. It'll deal with most light and heavy cruisers. Not Obviously not as good as an 8-inch cruiser is going to, but there's only one of those at Tier 5, and that's the Furutaka, which that cruiser is the best cruiser at Tier 5, in my opinion. Torpedo tubes are only decent. There's only uh, six of them, three on each side, and the maximum configuration. Their reload time is actually incredibly quick for Tier 5 at only 44 seconds, which is pretty good. Rotation speed is 25 degrees a second for 180 degree turn time of 7.2 seconds. That really doesn't matter on the ship because they're sided, which means that, again, they can only rotate like 180 degrees. They can't rotate the full 360, or at least or they can't rotate more than like... 160 degrees, so it's really not going to matter. And the torpedo speed is 56 knots, which is only okay. Maximum damage is kind of low at 11,733. Torpedo range, 5.49 kilometers, so basically 5.5 kilometers. It's, yeah, there. it's nothing but a short-range shotgun weapon that, for you to use. Don't, I wouldn't really rely on the torpedoes. Except for ambushing, if you're ambushing around the island, some people just expect to, like, you know, not have any torpedoes come at you because many people forget that, yes, Omaha is the last tech tree ship in the U.S. Uh, cruiser lineup that gets torpedoes, but it does have torpedoes, and they do 
more damage than its six-inch guns do by a lot. Its AA defense is pretty good. Um, the maximum range is 3.51 kilometers, and I mean it's sufficient to defend itself and teammates near it. But it's really, it's really nothing to write home about, I guess. But it's pretty good for its tier. It'll defend itself definitely against tier four planes. Maximum speed is 34 knots without a speed flag. I recommend using a speed flag so you can chase down destroyers. That's pretty good. Uh, turning circle radius, so how um, the radius of how much it's going to take to turn if you put full rudder in either direction. That is 600 meters, so it it's long and it's fast and skinny, so it takes a it takes a while to turn, so that's not too bad. Rudder shift time is pretty good at 5.7 seconds. Uh, surface detectability range is 13.5 kilometers, which is kind of a long ways for a cruiser tier 5, especially one as fragile as this. This, yeah, so it means it can't really sneak up on much other than a battleship, which is something you want to avoid engaging in the ship at all costs. Air detectability range 5.35 kilometers. Yeah, uh, nothing amazing. Um... So this ship is very tricky to play. It needs to use islands, for sure. Uh, using islands to kind of ambush ships and destroyers is kind of the number one thing that you're going to do in this ship. Is ambushing, staying hidden behind islands, stay concealed, and try not to take any hits whatsoever because this is the squishiest of cruisers. Well, actually, not, it's not the squishiest. HMS Emerald is, which is a very terrible ship, by the way. But... This ship can be very, very effective, and it is really, really good at charging smoke screens because you can run the hydroacoustic search consumable, which will detect torpedoes uh, out to a range of like four kilometers, I want to say, three or four kilometers, which is more than enough time for you to avoid them if you're sufficiently predicting them. And that means it's a nightmare for any destroyer who wants to sit in their smokescreen, especially if Hydro is up. You can charge straight into the smokescreen, detect him from a range of 4 kilometers, start just melting him with these flamethrower guns. Because they have that 12% chance of starting a fire. And yeah, they will melt a destroyer. One interesting thing about this ship is it can have 6 guns pointed on any target directly out front from it. So if I'm directly in front of most ships, so if I'm pursuing something, I can only get my forward guns to fire usually. And that's the same on the Omaha. But most of its firepower is in the front and can fire on it. And it makes it very good at pursuing ships. So you're pursuing a destroyer, it's deadly. Um, it only has armor plating, however, on the machinery spaces. So a very small portion of the belt armor. So just above the citadel. And I believe it's only 30 millimeters of armor. Or, or less than that, actually. But it can bounce battleship caliber shells. It can, if it's sufficiently angled. But, but the nose can be overmatched by pretty much anything. It can actually be, I believe it can be overmatched by 6-inch armor piercing. And while it can't be citadeled through the front, or it'd be very difficult for it to be citadeled through the front by a uh, light cruiser fire armor piercing, pretty much any battleship can citadel it through the nose. And essentially what that means is if I'm angling sufficiently, the battleship can shoot through the nose of the ship into the citadel, the critical part of the ship, and wipe you from the map. That it is like the favorite target of battleship captains is in Omaha. If you come up on their detection and they have, or they're in range of you, 
you can expect those guns to turn in your direction and fire upon you, because you're just so easy to citadel. In my Oktyabrskaya Revolutsiya, which is my favorite tier 5 battleship, uh, Russian battleship, it has 305mm guns, or 12-inch guns, which means they're very unlikely to over-penetrate the, the uh, Omaha's armor, because it is a cruiser, but it will pretty much always penetrate. Almost always penetrate. And that leads into pretty much single salvo deleting them from the map at a range of anything less than 12 kilometers for sure. Probably anything from maximum range or less. So yeah, you want to avoid getting shot up by battleships at all costs. If you have destroyer near you and their smoke screens off cooldown, you might want to request that they lay a smoke screen so you can escape. Because this is a relatively stealthy ship, I would definitely invest in Concealment Expert if you have a four-point captain. Because that is that is very, very useful. Actually, no, you need a ten-point captain, never mind. But you, if you have four points on your captain and you can get the fourth-tier skills on the captain, definitely upgrade Concealment Expert. And that will increase your concealment so that ships won't see you from as far away. And that's very good. So, main objectives, what are you going to do in the ship in a battle? Well, what I usually did was not recommendable, because I was new to World of Warships, and I didn't really know what to do in the ship, because it was so fragile and hard to play. But now that I know how World of Warships works, and, I mean, I was new to World of Warships several years ago, but now that I have a better understanding of how everything works, I would... Definitely stick close to my battleships, or I would follow my destroyers. Like, let's say there's a, a flight, like, find islands. If there's a place where destroyers love to hang out, then go there, because that's just about the only people who are, or only type of ship that's not going to instantly kill you, is light cruisers and destroyers. So go find those islands, engage those ships, and ambush them, because there is pretty much no destroyer other than with their torpedoes that's going to be able to gun you down. You're like a destroyer that has bigger guns and a lot of them. And I mean a lot of them. And one time when I was playing my Omaha recently, I was able to take out two destroyers with my torpedoes on either side, pulling sort of a Gneisenau move. And that was rather satisfying. Yes, this will do mass amounts of damage with armor piercing against any cruiser that is broadside to you at tier 5. However, if you get in a, like a tier 7 battle and you're like starting to have to gun down uh, New Orleans and uh, Albas and things like that, you're really not, or I suppose Albas tier 6, but you're really not going to be doing too well. If you get in a tier 7 battle, I would... I yeah I wouldn't rush anywhere too quick. I would stay with your battleships and just accompany them, trying not to get detected and uh, stick by the islands. So let's go into the upgrades. I would definitely do main armaments modification one. It just kind of helps your guns be more reliable and reduces the repair time on them. So definitely do that. Steering gears modification one in. Slot 2 is what Wargaming recommends, however, I do recommend the Aiming Systems Modification 1 to get that dispersion down to basically nothing, and uh, get those guns a, uh, a little bit more accurate so you can uh, more reliably hit those tiny destroyers out at range. And in Slot 3, uh, I would definitely put a like Propulsion Modification 1 or not modification one, but propulsion mod or 
a steering gears modification because that is going to help in making sure that your engines are more reliable for you and that they just you know and their repair time is decreased by an extra 20 percent and with this the ship you really could just do either of them because you're going to need to dodge incoming fire really a lot and you're going to need to have those engines up to get away from thresk as there are a lot of them because this is a fragile ship recommended commander skills uh preventative maintenance definitely but i would go with priority target first and priority target lets you know how many ships are aiming at you because uh as you are a very very uh, fragile ship you're going to have a lot of people aiming at you. You want to know if you're going to be detected. If you're just detected and no one's aiming at you, you don't have to do any evasive maneuvers. But if some of those battleships are taking an interest in you and starting to aim at you, then you're going to want to know when they're aiming at you so you can uh, maneuver around their shells. Uh, next, really, in this uh, second tier, you really could do whatever. I would do Adrenaline Rush to get those guns firing, but that's just up to you. The Adrenaline Rush is going to increase the reload of your guns, or decrease the reload, rather, of your guns uh, as you're taking more damage, which will take a lot of damage in this ship, and that will help you get your guns firing faster as the situations are getting more desperate. Demolition Expert. So 2% increase the chance of HE shells causing a fire on target. That will be the choice or skill of choice in uh, in the third tier, and that's going to make your guns have a 14% chance of setting up fire, which is absolutely amazing. Turns the thing into a, a literal flamethrower. Like you will find yourself setting two or three fires every battleship that you shoot at, and that's really useful. You could go with inertia fuse for high explosive shells or IFHE. And that's 25% of the armor penetration of HE shells, but you lose 50% of the base fire chance of your HE shells. So I don't know if I would really take that. Yes, it's going to increase the damage output, but a lot of the damage output that comes from these shells is going to be farming with the fire chance. So I would really... Yeah, I don't know if I agree with Wargaming recommending that for you. I would take something like... Uh, the radio position finding so you can see where the destroyer is that's around the island so that you can ambush them more accurately. So what's my general gist of this ship? Well, my general gist of this ship is if you can stay concealed as possible, go through those islands and just kind of duke it out with those destroyers and other light cruisers, maybe the occasional heavy cruiser there. But otherwise, never show broadside, like ever, 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 ever. Under no circumstances should you ever show broadside unless you're guaranteed to die and you're going to get those torpedoes off. And I would say never show broadside unless you're getting those torpedoes off. And if you're going to get those torpedoes off, you better be under 5,000 hit points. You better, because otherwise you're just throwing away your shift and you're guaranteed to get citadeled. Uh, other than that, just keep the nose in, keep firing, and yeah, that's pretty much it with this ship. It's an okay ship. I, it, it can be fun to play, but you definitely it has an acquired taste, is what I'm trying to say. And I would recommend kind of grinding through it. And then the Pensacola at the next tier is absolutely horrifically bad, in my opinion, and should be grinded through as hard as you can to get to the New Orleans, which is at tier 7 and is the first good heavy cruiser if you're going down the American heavy cruiser path towards the Des Moines. It's just, the New Orleans is really cool to play, and I love it, 
it's just you have to get through the Omaha and the uh, Pensacola to get to it. So Omaha is okay. Just to don't have high expectations for the next years is what I'm trying to say. Some of you may be asking as well. There, well, Jaden, there's, I think, f- three different premium versions of the Omaha. Are they worth anything? Well, um, maybe. I mean, if you really enjoy playing the Omaha, sure, I guess. The Murmansk has 8-kilometer torpedoes, and that's the Soviet version of the Omaha, which was USS Milwaukee when it was uh, given to the Soviet Union on a lease as part of the Lend-to-Lease program, or it was lended to the Soviet Union, and it was given back to the United States in 1949, and it has 8-kilometer-inch torpedoes, which makes it a little bit more of an agile ship, so I would probably go for the Murmansk, rather than the Marblehead or the Marblehead Lima, if you have one of those. But it's, I mean, you can play them. I don't, I personally wouldn't go for them, but it's your money. It's how you want to spend it. I mean, if you have nothing else to spend coal on in the armory, yeah, I mean, the Marblehead might be a cool choice if it's still in the armory for coal. But I think that just about does it for this episode of Rank Amateur on the USS Omaha. If you like this episode... Be, please be sure to share it. We're seeing our listenership go up monumentally in the last few days, and I really appreciate if you would share and subscribe to my podcast. If you have any questions, you can go to my Anchor page and leave a voice message, or you can email me at rankamateurpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to check out the episode description for a link to my merchandising site. I think I have some pretty cool merch on there. Anything from water bottles to t-shirts to backpacks to lunchboxes and a tote bag. And a mouse pad if you want that too. Please be sure to check that out and I will catch you next time, Captains. (laughs) 